Thank you for joining us again on the Real Biblical Application Podcast. Today we have a uh, part one in a two-part series on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to get two sides. Uh, we're going to get the side that Aaron is going to present today, which many refer to as the word-only position. I'm not sure if that's the way he would uh, phrase it, but uh, it's the dwelling of the Holy Spirit through the Word in the believer. And then the second one, which Caleb Leonard will present next, is on personal indwelling, the Holy Spirit dwelling in the person. And so uh, this will be a good study for people to kind of hear both sides of the coin. And I'm going to kind of take the the opposite side, uh, depending on who I'm talking to. I'm going to kind of speak from Caleb's side when I talk to Aaron and Aaron's side when I talk to Caleb. Because uh, me personally, I've held both beliefs in my my life, and I feel like I can ask questions uh, from both sides and generate some good discussion. Now, th- this won't be a debate. If you're here for a debate, then you're out of luck, because uh, that's not what this is going to be. This is an opportunity for Aaron to present his view and for me to ask a few questions. I'm not going to argue with his answers. I'm just going to ask the question uh, and let him give his answer. And so I hope this is a beneficial study and a resource for you and your studies of the Holy Spirit. And Aaron, this is your, your second time here on the podcast. And right. uh, w- we appreciate you coming on again. I-, I want you to start by just kind of giving a opening thesis, I guess you could say, of this view of the Holy Spirit for people to be familiar with uh, kind of what the view is and, and how you see it in a general sense. Yeah. Uh, first, thanks for having me on. Um, although first time you had me on, it was self-defense, which is mm-hmm. its own little hot button topic for you and I, especially as we're very pacifist in our belief system. And not everyone was a fan of that, at least when they talked to me. And then you give me the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's uh feel like sometimes you don't like me and so you just want to put me in these spots but that's all right um i'll tell you real quick uh you know some of the first sermons i ever got assigned to give uh were difficult ones uh me being a young whenever i was a young single man i was assigned a topic of husbands and wives in ephesians chapter five uh yeah that was one of the first lessons I gave. And then later on, when the congregation was studying eldership, I was assigned uh, verses on the eldership and to give my view on those qualifications. And again, these are some of the first lessons that I ever gave. Right. Uh, but on this podcast, we like to kind of tackle the tough things uh, to yeah. provide that resource. And so I, I appreciate you coming and, and taking on these these topics. Always, man. And so kind of a synopsis of what these positions are. Uh, we talked about uh, Caleb's going to talk on his position, which is your position as well. And it's a position held by some extremely respected, highly beloved individuals within kind of our community of believers and the community of religious people at large. Um, and so I'll just point that out to say that both sides have some individuals on it that I think have done tremendous jobs in presenting their positions and their points. And there's some good arguments on both sides of the position. My position that 
you asked me to present, which is my position, uh, is this idea that the Holy Spirit indwells in us. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but he does so through, sometimes we'll call this a representative indwelling of the Holy Spirit, or as you talked about it in uh, more general terms, it's called the word-only position. And that is that the Holy Spirit himself in his person doesn't literally indwell in us. Instead, he uses a representative, he uses a medium, which I believe is the word, his word, the Bible. Uh, and when the word of God dwells in us, that is when it controls our lives and it is the um, controlling factor of our decisions, that is what the Bible describes as the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so that's really the synopsis of my position. Now, like I said, there's a second position, and that's the position that Caleb will take and you take as well. And it's a, a, a literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the uh, Holy Spirit or the person of the Holy Spirit literally and directly lives inside of us or inside of the believer. And I know that's a very uh, short answer to what that is. I know there's a lot more mm -hmm. to it, but those are really the two positions. And mine will be, and mine is that second position that the Holy Spirit does dwell in us. And we're not going to deny that in any way, shape or form. But as he's always done, and as God and Jesus have always done, when they dwell or when they give their presence or put their presence in or around humankind, they do it through a medium, they do it through a representative. And we'll talk about what that looks like throughout Scripture. But in the New Testament, that is described as the Word of God. And so that may be a summary of my position. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. And, uh, and hopefully that adds clarification for people who might be wondering what this word only position is because yep. like you said that the personal indwelling is uh more popular uh maybe more well known or right. more widely believed uh right you know, different extremes in that but um i, I think I that's good for people to know there really are and i think as we're putting information out there, so that's the purpose of this podcast. Um, and you said, we're not debating, we're not arguing. Uh, you and I do that on the phone already. Uh, and <laughs> that's not what this is about. Um, that it, it is the direct, the literal indwelling is, we will say the more popular, especially uh, within the religious culture of the world we live in. Now, a lot of that has to do with things that neither you and I agree with in that a lot of the religious culture believes that the Holy Spirit, while literally indwelling us, also works um, and speaks to individuals in a direct way while indwelling them. And we'll talk about what that means for us, but you and I both hold the position that even though, let's say you or uh, Caleb hold the position that he literally indwells in me, I hold that he does th through the word. In both cases, there's some common ground. And that common ground begins with the fact that even though he literally does or he does through the word, he only operates or he only works or he only speaks to us through the word. And that is an important foundational principle to understand on both parts, whether your position or my position, that whatever work or whatever way he dwells within us, his work is still always and only accomplished through the word of God. And that'll be a later point through this. But as a foundational principle, that's an important one to establish, that his work is always going to be an, through the word of God, no matter what's happening. Now, we might say there's some providential things that happen, 
but we can never be sure about that. We can never know about that. The only thing that we can know for certain that when the Holy Spirit works is that he works through his word. And like I said, we'll give some verses about that later. But that is an important uh, foundational uh, common ground between the two positions that you hold and that I hold is that no matter which one it is, he works and operates through his word. And that's probably the most important thing for us all to come to an agreement on uh, as we search scriptures. Yep. And, and, and I do agree with that completely, that uh, as far as the Holy Spirit's communication with us, uh, the, the way he speaks with speaks to us directly uh, is through the word and not uh, through some kind of verbal utterance that that I hear or something like that. So, yes, I, I do agree with that. And I think it's yeah. good that, that we start off with that common ground. I, I would also like to see, you know, maybe some people listening aren't uh, familiar with the Godhead. They're not familiar with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and maybe distinction between the three. Uh, what is or who is the Holy Spirit? Right. And for me, I believe this is an essential quality or characteristic to understand with regard to understanding how the Holy Spirit dwells or lives within the Christian, the one who is being directed by his word. And so the Holy Spirit is an individual who is a part of what Colossians 2 calls the Godhead. Paul uses that terminology in Romans as well. And this idea of the Godhead speaks to and defines the biblical concept of God. Now, I don't know if you have an ever the topic about this ever. I think this would be a great one for you to have with somebody. Um, and that is this idea of the Godhead and who the Godhead is, because the biblical concept of God is a concept that comprises three beings. And so it's not just one individual. It is a concept. It is a, an idea, a word that comprises or is made up of three beings. And we can talk about those three beings being God, the father, uh, God, the word or God, the son in the New Testament and God, the Holy Spirit uh, throughout scriptures. And we see these three beings throughout the Old and New Testament in work uh, in Genesis one, verse 26. Uh, the Bible says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So this is God speaking. And so this is the plural form speaking to themselves. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so the concept of God in Genesis 1, and this is established in Genesis 1.1, Genesis 1.26, and elsewhere, is this idea of a plural being. And that plural being is comprised of one of the members being the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to realize that the Holy Spirit is not some, what we might say, is not some uh, wind or light or smoke. He's not some just concept that exists or thought or anything of that nature. Uh, he's not a glorified it, we might say. He's not just the mind or the temper or the disposition of Christ or God. He's a figure in the same way that God the Father and Jesus the Son are figures. Now, do we fully understand what those figures are? Uh, the answer is no. Uh, God is spirit. And John in 1 John says that Jesus in his glorified state we don't really understand what that is. We can understand some concepts of it because of what we see from his resurrection, but we still don't fully understand it. And the same goes with the Holy Spirit. 
while we can understand that he is a figure or some being like God the Father and God the Son, there are things about that that we don't fully understand. There are things we can, and that is in John 16, which we don't have to read, but in John 16, 13 through 14, uh, Jesus personifies the Holy Spirit. He recognizes that he is a he, uh, he, the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, 13 through 14, he can lead, he can submit, he can speak, he can listen, and he can even look after the betterment of others. And so he has personal uh, characteristics that define him as his own individual being, not just this, as we said before, glorified it. And even though throughout the Old Testament and sometimes in the New Testament, he's personified in the idea of a wind or light or smoke, we have to realize that those are not the literal person of the Holy Spirit. Instead, they're him revealing himself through a medium or a representative. Now, we'll talk more about that later, but the important thing to understand about the Holy Spirit is that when we look at the Holy Spirit and understand the Holy Spirit, we have to look at him and understand him in the same way as God the Father and Jesus the Son. As they are persons or figures, so also is the Holy Spirit. Like I said, we don't understand everything about that, but I think we can understand that as a general principle uh, with regard to the Holy Spirit as an individual part of the Godhead. Yeah, I I, I, I agree with Pretty much all that, and and we definitely do see the Holy Spirit as uh, an individual being, as you said, uh, yeah. and and not uh, you know uh, d- just the expression of Jesus or God, uh, but rather its own individual member of the Godhead, and so right. I I agree with that, and and it's. What we're talking about is the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that word dwell. Uh, yeah. What do you make of this word dwell? We see it throughout Scripture uh, in various ways. Uh, yeah. We hear about God dwelling with his people and with us. We hear it with Jesus dwelling with us and in us and all these things. Talk a little bit about this word dwell and how it's used in Scripture. Yeah. And so you have my notes. I have my notes with me as well. I'm going to flip some of my script in my notes um, because I think it will help deliver us into the dwell concept a little bit better. So I'm going to start near the bottom of my notes. And that is I'm going to go over to 1 Corinthians uh, 6. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 is a difficult passage at times. And I think it's difficult for both positions because we have to fully understand certain things about it. Um, I will say uh, that in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, this is for me, and I think for the word only position, maybe one of the most difficult verses uh, to explain and to have a perfect answer on. And maybe there is no perfect answer um, either way. And so if somebody wants to sit in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and say, this is why I believe he literally indwells on me. I don't have an answer for that. Now, I think as we look at the entire picture of Scripture, we'll see a better answer than that. Um, But in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, he says, flee, or Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? But you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, 
Paul, as he writes this and he works to condemn sexual immorality, he writes about this sin that is against our body. And the reason we don't want to do that is because he says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, this goes back to some common ground uh, that we can all agree on and work through. And that is we agree that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the reason 1 Corinthians 6 is a little bit more difficult than other verses is this same concept is brought up in 1 Corinthians 3. But the idea there is pretty obvious once you look at the context and the grammar of it, that he's speaking about the assembly, the church at large, and not just the individual. Well, 1 Corinthians 6 seems to be more pointed towards the individual. Now, understanding what it means that sexual immorality is a sin against your body while other sins aren't is its own discussion point. Um, But he wants you to be clear and to understand that there are reasons why sexual immorality needs to be limited and avoided in our lives. And part of that reason is because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so as Christians, we have this great blessing that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean? And to understand that, I think we can walk our way through the Old Testament and through the Bible to understand what God means and what it meant for a Jew. And would they understand you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is that meaning the Holy Spirit literally dwells in me? Or does it mean that there is some representative dwelling in me? And I think as we look through the Old Testament, we would see a Jew would recognize that that doesn't have to mean that the Holy Spirit literally lives inside of me. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 26 um, wait, where is it? Uh, in Exodus, excuse me, Exodus 40. Uh, in Exodus chapter 40, God makes a promise to his people and to those who would be faithful to him and who would be directed uh, by him. In Exodus 40, verse 34 through 38, he says, Then the cloud uh, covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day and fire over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And so this begins this presence, not begins, but it, writes about this presence that God has with his people. And it's a great presence. It's a wonderful presence that God has in order to help and encourage his people to be faithful and to remind them that he is with them. And that president, that presence, excuse me, is evident. He says here through what? A cloud, through glory. And it's evidence through fire by night and a cloud by day. And that was God's presence with his people over the tabernacle when it was set up. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, God's presence at the temple when it's established by Solomon is recognized by, again, a cloud. And Solomon sees this cloud, recognizes this cloud, and recognizes that God through this cloud is present with them. And when he, but when he speaks to God in verse 43, 45, and 49, Solomon says, I know that you are dwelling in heaven. And so Solomon recognized through a cloud that God was with them, but his literal dwelling place was in heaven because that's where God was sitting at his throne or sitting on his throne as Solomon spoke to him. 
And the same thing happens in Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, through this cloud and glory, he says, that God fulfilled his desire to walk and dwell with his people. And so God had a promise and had given a promise to his nation and his people that he would walk with them and dwell with them. And that promise comes in Leviticus 26. And he fulfills that, he recognizes and shows through this cloud and through his glory. And those are things that at times the Old Testament calls the spirit of God entering the temple. And when the spirit of God leaves the temple, what does that look like? It looks like a gust of wind leaving the temple. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is with his people. He's dwelling with his people and he is demonstrating that his presence is with them. How? Through a medium. And that's what he's doing throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, in Genesis 2 and 3, we get the perfect scenario, we might imagine, where God is, to the best of my knowledge, literally in some form uh, with Adam and Eve. But from that time on, once they're kicked out of the garden, he seems to use a medium. And that medium is not meant to discourage. It's not meant to um, dishearten the Israelites saying, well, God's not literally with me. It was through this great pillar of fire at night, this great cloud during the day that the people took courage that God was with them. So throughout the Old Testament, God's promise in Leviticus 26 is I would dwell with you. And I will walk with you. And that is accomplished throughout the Old Testament through a cloud, through glory, which is his Shekinah glory, his light, which is not the literal form of God. It's not the literal form of the Holy Spirit either. He's dwelling with them through Shekinah glory, light. He's dwelling with them through a pillar of fire, or through a cloud or through wind. However, uh, he decides to represent his presence. But it's never through this literal form of his body. And when Moses seeks to see God's presence, he tells him you can't because no one can look on God and live. And so he passes by and puts him in the cleft of the rock, covers his face and lets him see in some way the back of God. And that's the closest we get in the Bible of God's literal presence coming and uh, dwelling among men. But throughout the Old Testament, we get this picture of God dwelling through a medium, through some representation. And at times he recognizes and calls that his spirit dwelling with men or his spirit entering the temple. And yet even in those moments, the spirit is not in his literal form. He is dwelling through a medium, uh, whether it's cloud, a smoke, uh, a fire or light in one of those four or five ways. God is dwelling with his people. The spirit is dwelling with his people. And so the Jew could see and could recognize how God had dwelt with his people in the Old Testament. And so when we look to dwelling in the New Testament, our mind doesn't have to immediately say, well, then it has to be literal because that's how God does it always with his people, because that's not how God does it with his people. Instead, God seeks to dwell with them through a medium and in no way, shape or form, does that lessen the fact that God dwells with us? The courage that that pillar of fire gave the Israelites as they left Egypt was something that may be inexpressible. When they saw that fire marching with them, it gave them courage and it gave them strength. When they knew that God was with them, they knew that they were unbeatable in battle. They would be able to overcome whatever was coming their way. Now, they were still unfaithful a lot and complained a lot, 
But we sometimes worry and think that just because he's not literally the Holy Spirit or God is not literally inside of us, well, that lessens his influence, that lessens his power. That's not how it worked in the Old Testament. And when we see in a moment how he dwells in us in the New Testament, we'll recognize that that power, that courage, that strength that comes from him dwelling in us and his presence being with us is equal to that of the Old Testament, if not greater, because of the guarantees and the promises we have. And so that's where I want to start, is us understanding that the Old Testament, when God dwelt with, as he promised he would in Leviticus 20, when he walked with his people, those are figurative terms to recognize that we need to recognize because God never literally, whether it be God the Father, God the Word, or God the Spirit, never literally came and walked on the earth and put his feet on the earth or put his feet, his life inside of another individual outside of, we might say, some miraculous times. And yet he did fulfill his promise by dwelling with them through fire, through light, and through wind, and through a cloud. And so a representative dwelling of the Holy Spirit is the Old Testament picture. And the New Testament picture paints a pretty similar picture. And so, yes, uh, 1 Corinthians six nineteen teaches that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. How did God dwell in his temple in the Old Testament? Through a representative, through light, through fire, or through smoke, and sometimes just through a voice that Moses would speak to at the altar. And so how does he speak to us now in the New Testament? How does he dwell in us in the New Testament is where we're at. Before I get into that, uh, you can tell me, you can, do you have anything you want to add or take away? Yeah. No, I I just have a couple questions. Uh, Yeah. So I understand the, the medium concept and and maybe I I just need clarification on, on what you mean by that. So, you would say that that in the temple, uh, God is not dwelling in the temple. He just sent in some smoke or some of his glory or fire or something like that. So I would say that in the temple, when God says he is there, he is there, but he is there through a medium. And just because he's working through a medium doesn't mean that he's not there. And so that is because we see that in 1 Kings 8, verse 10, he fills the temple with a cloud. And that is recognized as his presence. And Solomon in 1 Kings 8, 43, 45, and 49, speaking to God with his presence, the cloud there says, you are in heaven, your dwelling place. And so God dwelling in the temple through a medium doesn't mean God's not there. It just means that God is using a representative to do uh, to be visible to humankind in a way that we can fully understand. Because as he said to Moses, you can't see my presence. Mm -hmm. And so in order to give humankind a visible representation of him, he does so through, like I said, Shekinah glory, through light, through wind. And that isn't meant to discourage us and say, well, God's not really here. It's meant to say God is really here. God is present. And so that is what I would say about that. It's not that he's not there because he is. He says he's there. But that doesn't mean that the literal form of God is there. It means he's there uh, through his representative. And the fact that God can do that is a part of God. That makes sense? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, 
you, you said that this is maybe the one time that you see uh, where God is literally there as opposed to being there through a medium, correct? Is yeah. Genesis 3, 8 what you were talking about there? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so the verbiage here is that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, so we have this picture of God uh, mm-hmm. stro- strolling through the garden. Right. Um, and and, and that that's, is showing that he is he's there. Uh, mm-hmm. With them, um, we have the same same language used uh, with the Israelites. He he walked among them. Yeah. Um, th- that doesn't seem to me like a a medium. That that seems more like he is actually there, just like he was actually there in the garden, because the same type yeah. of language is used. He's walking among them. Yeah. Um, and. I have one verse. I told you I would I would ask a question with poop in it, and so here we go. You gotcha. Uh, <laughs> okay, uh, Deuteronomy chapter twenty three, uh, verses uh, twelve through fourteen. I'll let you get there before I start reading. All right, what you got? Okay, it says designate a place outside the camp where you can go relieve yourself. As part of your equipment, have something to dig with. And when you relieve yourself, dig a hole and cover up your excrement. For the Lord your God moves about in your camp to protect you and to deliver your enemies to you. Your camp must be holy so that he will, see, he will not see among you any, anything indecent and turn away from you. Uh, the reason I bring up this verse is because it's very similar to, to the garden um, mm-hmm. And that you have God moving among the people, uh, not in some kind of medium way, but he, he's moving among them. And so they were supposed to cover up their, their excrement um, because of that, to keep it holy. Uh, how, how would you, I guess, align this, this thinking with, with the medium idea uh, where you see God moving among the his people in the garden, Adam and Eve, and then later moving among his people, uh, the Israelites. Uh, it, it seems very, very literal. Right. And the way we could, the way we might think about this idea in a literal sense is this fact that we can. It, I don't want to get into a semantic point. I don't <laughs> like those points. Um, yeah. But we, I believe, we can recognize that God is not literally without a medium in this sense, walking amongst His people, because of what He says to Moses. If God were literally without some other form or without some other medium, uh, walking amongst His people. To see him would be to die because of his glory, because of who he is. And so God is not literally walking amongst his people in his true form. He's Mm -hmm. using some kind, whether it's whether he is walking amongst them, we might say um, literally with his footsteps and with all of that, or whether this is a 
reference to the fact that God is present in the camp of his people. His tabernacle is there. That's his dwelling place. And so he is in the midst of his people at all times. Uh, when the cloud is there, they stay. When the cloud of the fire moves on, the Bible says that they would follow it and they would walk with God. Um, and so there is this idea that God is amongst his people, but we believe that God is amongst us today as well. And he uh, is a part of our lives and he is present. That doesn't mean that he's literally here uh, in his physical form. And I think that's what's going on here. It is a holy place to be around God and his presence and within his camp, within his family. And all things that desecrate that holiness need to be removed. Now, in Deuteronomy 23, what is that? It's their excrement, it's their poop. And so they need to remove that from the camp because this is God's holy place. And now, how does that, we might say, harmonize with Genesis chapter 3? The way I look at Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis chapter 3 is a perfect picture because sin hasn't entered that. Uh, they're in a perfect state. Uh, they have access to the tree of life. And so their interaction with God is a perfect interaction that is broken when they're kicked out of the garden and when sin enters the world. When sin grows so great uh, later on, God recognizes that his spirit, that he would not dwell with mankind, and that's recognized in that scene uh, through the flood. And so the relationship between God and humankind when sin enters the world is different outside of the garden than it was inside of the garden. Now, is it possible that God in Genesis chapter 3 could have been using some, some medium? Yeah, uh, he could have taken on some form. Maybe he looked like what Jesus looked like in the New Testament. We don't know uh, what the angel of the Lord looked like. Um, but in Deuteronomy 23, he seems to be just referencing the fact that God is present within his camp, within and among his people. Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14 is what you quoted me. Um, and not necessarily. And that representation, that presence isn't a literal one, because as Solomon recognizes in 1 Kings 8, your dwelling place is in heaven. It is a representative one. It is uh, a non-literal one, whether that's through their obedience and their faithfulness to God through his temple, through the law, through all of that existing inside the camp. And it is that terminology that's being recognized that through that, through God dwelling in his temple, through a cloud, through fire, through smoke, through light, God is literally there. And we shouldn't diminish a representative position because mm -hmm. God doesn't diminish a representative position. When his light is there, he is there. And we need to treat that with equal respect as if God was before us. So you're good. Oh, no, I just had one question uh, yeah. regarding that. So Colossians 1.16, and this is the NIV. Uh, okay. It says, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Uh, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so the the thing I want to kind of hone in on there is visible and invisible. Mm -hmm. uh, so I believe that, that God can be among us in a very special way and be yeah. invisible. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so God could walk through the garden and, 
and the other thing was, is this was after the sin that he was walking through the garden in this right. way, uh, after yeah. sin, sin had entered the world. Um, and, and so he can walk through invisibly and he can be mm-hmm. there invisibly and still be there. Uh, and so just because we can't see him, he can choose to manifest himself through smoke or through fire or through Shekinah glory or whatever mm-hmm. we might want to say. Um, but he can be there, very much be there as a individual being, just to use the word we used earlier, in an yeah. invisible state. And he can move among them, but be invisible to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that's kind of the way that a, a person would look at this who, who believes in literal indwelling. Uh, right. is that God can do these things invisibly uh, to the right. human eye, but still be present. Um, just kind of like, like I have a spirit, uh, right. you know, I can't cut open my body and find my spirit, but I, I, right. I believe I have it. Uh, in, the, yeah. in the same way, uh, we can yeah. believe that God is there and not, and not see him uh, right. with our eyes. Now, what we're not going to do, you and I both, we are not going to limit God. Right. Could, can God be invisible? Yeah. Can God literally, can the Holy Spirit literally indwell on me? Yeah, he can. And so in no way, shape, or form are we going to limit God's power because mm-hmm. we don't even understand the, the full measure of God's power. And so can God do something? Yes. The question becomes, does God do that? And while at times he does, and I'm not going to say there's never a moment in our life where God or the Holy Spirit is not literally inside of us. There, like we mentioned earlier, there might be providential times where that happens, where things happen and now providence is its own topic. And so we're not going to go down that path, but there, <laughs> there might be times where that happens. We, we but, have already privately. <laughs> I know. And that's why I know we're not going to go down it right now. Um, but the consistent theme throughout the temple was this presence through a cloud or through fire, or through Shekinah glory. Now, when God spoke, when Moses was in uh, the holiest place and God spoke to him and there wasn't really a form there, he just heard a voice. Could God have been there in his physical form, just invisible? Yeah, um, that's entirely possible. Could God's voice have just been there? Yeah. Um, and so can God be invisible and walk amongst us? Yeah. Uh, is that part of what's happening in uh was that Deuteronomy that you gave me? Uh, yeah, Deuteronomy 23. Correct. Yeah. Uh, it really could be. Um, both positions, I think, can have merit. That just the fact that they are in the presence of God and in his temple, God's there. Could God literally be walking amongst his people invisibly? He very much could be. Um, and so I think you just wanted to read a Bible verse that had that talked about poop. I really think yeah. that's why you yeah. brought that up. I'm childish at times. It's okay. It happens. It makes me laugh too. (laughs) So so let's kind of move move on from this discussion. Uh, Do you feel like you've kind of covered the Old Testament here, and we can kind of start to transition in 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 six verses? Yeah, we covered the whole whole Old Testament. Obviously, there's a lot more that we could cover in the Old Testament uh, pertaining to the spirit, uh, right? uh, Spirit filled donkeys and all sorts of stuff, but. Right. There's a lot going on in the Old Testament. Um, and like I said, 
it's 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 broad and it's wide and there's a lot going on and there are times where we have to understand things in different ways because of context but i mean like i said you can walk through exodus 19 really quick uh thunder and lightning that's god's presence Mm -hmm. exodus 40 cloud covering the tabernacle that's god's presence second chronicles 7 1 fire and glory god's presence exodus 13 pillar of fire god's presence exodus 25 uh, God's presence over his ark through light and glory. And so in a snapshot, you can kind of look at what God's presence, especially in his temple and tabernacle, looked like. And it was that which comes in the form of a medium or representative. And so if we can think about that in that light, yeah, we can move forward into the New Testament. Okay, very good. Uh, so J- Jesus comes. Uh, he says, I'm going to send you a helper uh, to the disciples. Uh, Acts 2 occurs. The helper arrives, uh, the, the helper being the Holy Spirit. There's right. the, the, what, what is referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Peter gives a, a great lesson there on the day of Pentecost. Uh, and then Acts 2.38 comes up. And so Acts 2.38 uh, from both yeah. sides have varying degrees uh, or various uh, viewpoints, I would say, on what they think it is. Uh, And, you know, I I think both sides have some merit. Um, And I personally don't think the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit itself, or at least not exclusively. Uh, But that, of course, is one viewpoint. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so the question is, what do you view the gift of the Holy Spirit as in Acts 2.38? Yeah. And state is kind of this hinge, not hinge verse, we might say, but it's, it's one used, like you said, by both sides. And it's a very famous set of verses after the Jews cry out after Peter preaches his, his heart-ripping sermon there he says what must we do and we know their final word is to be saved he says repent let everyone of you be baptized in the name of jesus christ for the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the holy spirit now there's three main positions i'll say there might be a fourth although i think the fourth might fit into the third main position um there are three main positions with what is the gift of the holy spirit and i'm it's my goal throughout all of this is to put information out there uh, mm-hmm. Caleb will come and knock it out of the park when he comes in uh, and records. <laughs> but is I want people as the purpose of this podcast is to understand or have the information. So here's three main positions of Acts two thirty eight. Number one, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself, and grammatically you can kind of see that and work to understand that position. That the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself indwelling those who have been baptized for the remission of sins. Second position is that it's not the Holy Spirit himself, it's miraculous gifts. And that is a position that I, I'm going to say I hold mostly because I don't have an argument against it. I think we can bring up some arguments against that first one, that he's the Holy Spirit himself. And I think we can bring up arguments against the third one, which the third one is that it is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And that gift might be, Uh, salvation that gift might be christian community which is the very next thing talked about 
uh, in Acts 2, verse 40 through the end of the chapter is the community of believers who were there in Jerusalem. And so those are, I'll say, again, the three main positions. It's miraculous gifts. It's the Holy Spirit himself, or it's a gift from the Holy Spirit, such as salvation or Christian community. Um, and like I said, the, the first one, miraculous gifts, is what I tend to lean towards because it seems to be the, the best answer in context of what's happening in Acts 2, Acts 10, and throughout the book of Acts at large when it comes to this type of verbiage. Now, what I mean by that is in Acts chapter 2, Paul's sermon, or Peter's, excuse me, Peter's sermon begins with a prophecy. And it begins with this great Old Testament history lesson that he gives to the Jews, reminding them of what's about to happen and what's happening. And in part, it's to show that this is what they should have expected. The apostles aren't drunk because they're speaking in different languages, which is not even a gift of drinking alcohol. Um he points out to them that this is something that they should have always been expecting. And so in verse 17 of Acts chapter 2, he begins to quote and refer back to Joel. And Joel chapter 2 writes about and speaks about in prophetic time or prophetic terms, the fact that those under the Christian age or Christian dispensation would have miraculous gifts imparted to them. Uh, that the men and the women would prophesy, they would speak. And so there is this great uh, prophecy of miraculous gifts coming. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we see this idea being presented that those who are baptized, that is those who fit the qualifications of Joel 2, would there receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Joel 2 promises salvation and it promises uh, a gift and it promises miraculous gifts. So Acts 2.38 promises salvation, and just like Joel 2, it also promises miraculous gifts. Now, there's another reason to think that Acts 2.38 is referring to miraculous gifts, and that reason is Acts 10.45. In Acts 10.45, the household of Cornelius receives the gift of the Holy Spirit as well, but they receive miraculous gifts. And so Luke, the writer of Acts, on two accounts uses the same language. And in one account, Acts 10, it's obvious that that language is in reference to miraculous gifts. And so we wouldn't expect Luke to change his terminology from Acts 2.38 to Acts 10 without some indication or some clue. But it's something that helps us understand that there is no indication he's changing his terminology. And so when we see that terminology in Acts 10 come up again in the context of obvious miraculous gifts speaking in tongues, we should understand that when we go back to Acts 2.38, that it is something that would be given to those at that time uh, after they were baptized. And as you follow through the book of Acts, we see that happening. Um, Philip, he goes on, he baptizes, and what happens? The apostles have to follow him up and impart miraculous gifts or mark an individual for the Holy Spirit to give them miraculous gifts. And so throughout the book of Acts, you're seeing people be baptized for the remission of sins and receive uh, through the laying on of the apostles hands, miraculous gifts. And so we have this closed loop within Acts of the account of Acts 2.38 being played over and over again in the context of salvation and then through the laying on of the apostles hands, miraculous gifts. And so I think 
what I'll say is there's good arguments for all three of those positions. But I think the one argument that in my mind has the weakest rebuttal is miraculous gifts. And that is something that I believe lends merit or gives merit to that position. What do you have to say about that? <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, I have a couple of questions because I, I wasn't expecting you to take that position, the miraculous right. gift position. In fact, I think I made a face when you said <laughs> miraculous gift. Uh, so I apologize about that. But You're all right. um, so a couple of questions for clarification. Um, yeah. So you wouldn't say. Uh, it says, repent, each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the uh, forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So you would say that this is this gift of the Holy Spirit that they're given is not something that's accomplished through baptism. No, correct. Okay. It is accomplished uh, in correlation at times with it, but not uh, through baptism. OK. Um, and so. The only thing that that kind of gives me pause here, and maybe not yeah. the only thing, there might be several things, but uh, it says that you will re- you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on to say, "For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off." And so, to me, this gift of the Holy Spirit has to be something that is given to them and their children and those who are far off, and so. If that is the case, did everyone who was baptized on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 people, receive miraculous gifts from the apostles? Uh, because otherwise, it would seem that that's not a true statement, um, that they, they would receive that. Uh, I, I guess, you know, are, are the miracles for them, or is the gift of the Holy Spirit miraculous gifts that everyone receives or they all get to experience or how how would you view that? So we have to think about, I think that's a great question. Now 39, which is what you just read verse 39 Mm -hmm. is another reason. I believe we can take this as miraculous gift for the promises to you and to your children. What promise is he talking about? Well, if you continue, if you're in his sermon in acts two, The only other promise that he's really given is the promise of Joel 2, which is that they would receive miraculous gifts. Now, you can talk about other promises that exist outside of uh, Joel 2 or outside of this sermon, the promise of salvation, the promise of the seed coming and being a part of his family, uh, the promise that the Holy Spirit would uh, reside with his people. There are promises, but within the sermon itself, the promise that would be referred back to if he was staying within his own logical uh, sermon, would be the promises of Joel 2. Now, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord God will call. And so the promise is to all, like, how am I going to put this? The promise was for all of them, and it is li- it is limited by the scope of who the apostles would impart miraculous gifts to or mark uh, as those who would receive miraculous gifts. Now, does that mean that they didn't all benefit from miraculous gifts? No, they did. Every individual in the first century and we today still benefit from miraculous mm-hmm. gifts, although they don't happen anymore, according to First Corinthians. And so the promise 
is that they would receive miraculous gifts. Not that every individual would receive miraculous gifts, but those who, uh, and we see this in other places, those who would have uh, the apostles lay hands on them and the Holy Spirit would give them miraculous gifts. They would then all benefit from whatever gift was given. The purpose of miraculous gifts was to benefit the church. First Corinthians 14 and other chapters in First Corinthians talk about that, that the entire purpose of miraculous gifts was to benefit and to aid the growth and the uh, expansion of the kingdom of God in the world. And so while this promise is given to all, it is limited to those to whom the holy, who the apostles will say, would lay hands on and impart miraculous gifts to. Yet that doesn't mean every individual who is local and afar wouldn't receive a benefit from this promise because they would. Um, and so in short, that's how I might answer that question. Okay. I would say that's a legitimate answer. Uh, and I can see how you would come to that conclusion. Um, and th the other thing is, I would think if, you know, they, they made this grand announcement that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, mm -hmm. um, that we would then see a big outflow of miracles being performed by uh, some or all of those who were baptized. Mm -hmm. uh, and and we, we don't really see that. At least it's not recorded in Scripture. Uh, the most, let's see, I think the next miracle that occurs or the fir first miracle that occurs that's not performed by an apostle would be like Acts chapter 6 with uh, Stephen mm -hmm. um, after he had hands laid on him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th that's probably several years after uh, this occurrence in Acts chapter 2. Right. Uh, and so th that's just one of the things that kind of gives me pause. If, you know, you make this grand announcement, you're all you're going to receive, maybe not all, but some of you are going to receive miraculous gifts because we're going to give them to you. Uh, yeah. And and that doesn't happen for, you know, several years, or at least right. not in our written text. It seems yeah. kind of anticlimactic, I guess you could say, uh, you know, for some people. Yeah. And uh, we can see that point of view. And I think that's definitely something to struggle with as we think about what's going on in Acts 2. Um, the history that's recorded in the book of Acts is drawing our attention to the expansion of the church. And because of that, you're not going to see everything recorded. Same reason we don't see everything recorded in the Old Testament, because it is drawing our attention to God's faithfulness and pre preserving his promise through Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and narrowing that lineage down to Christ. And so we miss things. We miss all the history of Egypt. We miss a lot of history within Israel at times because it's focused on certain families or on certain individuals. Now, we get this text in Acts chapter 8 where Philip goes and he preaches um, and he wants others to and he's, you know, helping uh, grow the church in Samaria. And he's baptizing as they see uh, the truths that he's preaching to them in verse 13. Then Simon himself believed. And when he was baptized, um, he continued with Philip and was amazing. The miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so baptism 
in Acts chapter 8 was not the promise or not the point where these people received the Spirit. It was in kind of this theme that's going on. It was at the praying and the laying on of the hands of Peter and John because he hadn't fallen on them. He hadn't come upon them yet. And so in Acts, we get that great promise in 238, which is a fulfillment of Joel 2. We see it in fruition or come to life in Acts 8. And we see that terminology again in Acts chapter 10. And it's related to uh, miracles and laying on the hands of the apostles. And so I think there is this pattern in this theme. And while there are things that we can wrestle with, um, because like I said, those other two positions have legitimate arguments to them as well. And so it's not like there's a cut and dry argumentation. But our argumentation against Acts 2.38 being miraculous gifts, and yeah, you made a face and that's okay because I don't think I ever expected at times to, to say those words growing up because that's mm-hmm. not the history of what I grew up in. Um, I think that is probably the most harmonious position with what is being taught from Joel 2 to Acts chapter 10 is what I think with regard to that position, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I, I think whenever I used to hold your position on the end one of the Holy spirit, I, I leaned more towards uh, the gift that the Holy spirit provides Right uh, is, is the way I looked at that. And I looked at it as salvation because salvation we can easily look at as a gift. Uh, right. In fact, uh, Galatians too. Uh, but, 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 but by grace you are saved through faith. Right. Uh, and it's a gift of God. And so, yeah. uh, you know, salvation or God's grace, we might say, uh, is given to those who are in Christ and those who are Christians. And, and it's certainly a gift. And so whenever I held your position in the yeah. past, uh, that is, is the way I looked at it. And I, I think, you know, you make some good points on the miraculous side to consider. And hopefully yeah. those listening will consider that. So let's, people might be wondering why we, we look at Acts 2.38 if it's not a verse that talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And, right. and the reason simply is because some people do look at it as <laughs> right. a verse that, that talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit that you receive right. at the time of baptism. And what's good um, to know is that Stuart, who believes in the literal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, doesn't look at Acts 2.38 like that. And nope, so look in at order that. to hold that position, you don't need Acts 2.38. Yeah. Neither do I, but you don't Acts 2.38 isn't this imperative verse that says it has to be this or all else fails. This isn't the this isn't the, the block that tumbles over the tower. Uh, yeah. There are different logical and well thought out viewpoints that uh, come from Acts 2.38, which are important to understand. Yeah, I think the gift of the Holy Spirit um, may include the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it doesn't have anything to do with it. Right. Uh, I, I would I would not restrict it to that, though. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's exclusively talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. I think it could be, uh, you know, a myriad of things that the Holy Spirit provides to uh, God's people. Uh, yeah. And the word would be included in that. And fellowship in the church would be another thing. Um, the Holy Spirit indwelling us is another thing. And, you know, I, I look at it as more of a broad statement 
than a direct gift. I, I think there's probably many gifts that we receive because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, so th- I kind of look at it more broadly just for everyone's opinion or everyone's uh, interest. <laughs> my, everyone That's very my much uh, like the Athenians in the book of Acts who have all of these idols and they're superstitious and they have one to the unknown God and Paul mm-hmm. recognizes that's because they don't want to miss one. And so Stuart's got this broad <laughs> perspective on actually because he doesn't want to miss something. What if the Holy Spirit gives me something that I don't, don't think it is? I don't want to miss it. So he's yeah, very superstitious. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Very good. So, so let's move back to the end one of the Holy Spirit, but let's talk about uh, the end one of the Holy Spirit uh, from the word only position in the Christian today. Okay. Uh, so t- tell us about the, the word only position uh, and your view on that and maybe some verses or uh, text they use to kind of back up that uh, viewpoint. <clears throat> yeah. Well, ultimately, the thing about the word only position is it requires, and I'm not saying that the literal position is the easy way out, but it requires it requires a contextual understanding about some of the terminology that's being used. And what I mean by that is, for instance, your position, and this isn't this is an admission that everyone has to ultimately admit. The position of the literal has the statement that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, mm-hmm. and so you, if you can just sit on that and say, see. That's, that's what it is. The word only position doesn't necessarily have that statement. Now we have statements very similar to it, but it demands that we ask the question, what does this mean? You know, you had Shahei on here the other day. I don't know when this is going to be posted. So at least a couple episodes back, you had Shahei on. He talked about his three-tiered structure of approach. What does it say? What does it mean? And how does that apply? And so we have to ask those questions about What's going on within texts that say the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus dwells or lives within us? Now, one of the important verses that Christians can cling to and word only people and everyone can cling to is Hebrews chapter eight. In Hebrews chapter eight, the writer there is writing about the transition from the old law to the new law and the better relationship that God's people are going to have under that new law. And there are different changes and there are different characteristics that are going on from the Old Testament law to the New Testament law. And one of those changes is this. He says there in 8 through 12 or Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 through 12. Well, this is just a snippet. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their heart. In fact, I'll turn there really quick and read the whole thing so that we can understand uh, what's going on. Hebrews 8, uh, verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, I know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And so the writer of Hebrews is pulling from the Old Testament to demonstrate. Now, he does that to show because he's writing to Jews who are thinking about reverting back to Judaism. And so he's showing that even the old law is pointing forward to this new covenant. And a part of that new covenant, a part of what separates God's people from the rest of the world, is that his word, his law, his teaching, the new covenant, would be that which rests or sits on their heart. 
And so the defining characteristics of God's people will be that they have his word in their heart. And that means more than just memorization. It requires application. And we see that throughout the New Testament in John eight fifty one, He says, most surely I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. In John eight fifty five, he says, but I do know him and keep his word. Our relationship to God is dependent upon his word being active and living in our lives. And so we have this great uh, picture that's being drawn in Hebrews chapter 8, demonstrating that God's people are set apart by the word living in us. Now, times we think well, we're set apart by the spirit living in us and the word only person would say, yeah, but he does so through the word. That's what Hebrews 8 is drawing out. And a comparison verse is a prophecy in Ezekiel 36. And Ezekiel 36, 27, speaking of the New Testament time, says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now, he says in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit within you. In Hebrews 8, he says, I will put my law in you. And so there's prophecies in the Old Testament that are about the spirit being in us that are fulfilled under the New Testament by the law being in us, by the word of God being in us. And so Hebrews 8, 10 through 12 sets this foundational principle that the fulfillment of God's prophecy or promises of his spirit being in us are realized through his word dwelling in us and living in us. And that's, as I said, this foundational principle that comes out in Hebrews and other verses as well, which we'll see in a moment. Do you want to talk about this for a second or you good? Uh, yeah, I, I just have one question. Um, so if the, the word is equivalent to the spirit dwelling in us, Mm -hmm. um, how, how does the word manifest the presence of God in us? Um, is, is kind of the first part, uh, and, and how would this be different Let's say someone who has not been baptized, someone who has not become a Christian, who studies the word of God. Let's say this person's an atheist. Right. Uh, and this is a question that many people would ask who, who take my side. I'm sure you've heard it before, so I'm sure you're prepared to give an answer. That uh, is a new question. No, no, I, I don't ask new questions. I ask the same old questions. Uh, so, so someone who's not a Christian, an atheist, reads his Bible he digests the word. He has the word of God in him because he has studied it. Um, what is the difference between that person and someone who's a Christian? Do they both are they both do they both have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, uh, or is this only something that Christians can have? Uh, and, and kind of how does that work? You're good. Uh... So, yeah, not a new question. I appreciate that about you. There's a difference and a separation between the two individuals. And first, the first separation is that the concept of living or dwelling in us is a concept that relates to obedience and, uh, let's say, control over our lives. So it's not just memorization is what I mentioned earlier. It's not just the fact that we memorize and can know scripture. That means the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us and is 
living in us. The Jews throughout the Old Testament or when Jesus spoke to them in John 8 knew scripture. They knew the law. And yet it was by keeping the law that made them a part or in a relationship with God. Even in the Old Testament, God walked among his people. We'll use that terminology again. God was with his people when? At every single moment? No. When they were faithful and were directed by God. And we see that at different times in the Old Testament. And what I mean by that is God would dwell with his people, be with his people. But when they lived in rebellion and lived in sin, God would remove his presence from them. And we see that with um, who's the first prophet in, in the book of Samuel? Uh, what's his name? Samuel's a boy. Who does who's? Who does who does he go and work? Oh, with? Um, I'm terrible with names. You're not going to get me it. From too. Me too. I'm just going to go turn to First Samuel. Eli. There you go. And so Eli has two sons, and they go out to war. And what do they do? They take the uh, they take the Ark of the Covenant with them because it was meant to represent God's presence. And in other places, it does represent God's presence. But because they were doing things in wickedness and sin, God's presence was not there. And so the word only position teaches and holds to the fact that it's not just the word existence in our mind or in our lives, that it's not just memorization. It is application and surrender to the control of scripture that allows us to have the spirit dwelling in us. And we get to that point in that mindset because you might say, well, that just sounds like faith, right? Uh, the whole is that you're just talking about faith when our conviction and our lives align with scripture. Well, that's when the Holy spirit dwells in us. Well, that sounds a lot like faith. Well, there's verses that allude to that exact point. It's a little bit different than faith. Uh, but there are reasons to believe that it's not just memorization and it's actually application and control. And we see that when we understand various concepts of dwell throughout the Bible. Uh, the concept of dwelling is a concept that brings with it the idea of control. Now, you mentioned this in the beginning. I don't know if it's part of the recording or just us having banter before this, um, that the Bible talks in various aspects of things dwelling in us. The Bible says, for instance, that God dwells in us. In John 1, verse 4, 1 John 1, verse 4, he says, no one has seen God at any time but if we love one another, God abides or dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. In John 14, verse 23, uh, Jesus and God both dwell in us. It says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. In Ephesians chapter three, it says that Jesus dwells in our hearts through faith. Now, that's objective faith, which is the word of God. Uh, it's not personal faith, although you could make the same argument. Um, and so Jesus in Ephesians 3 dwells in us through faith. Uh, Satan in Luke 22 dwelt in Judas. Now, that didn't mean that Satan literally in his form dwelt in Judas. It means that Judas was being controlled and dictated by the will of Satan. He was doing what Satan wanted him to do. Uh, in Romans 7, it uses the term sin dwells in me. 
in verse uh, Romans 7, verse 17 through 20, Paul twice says in verse 17, but now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul can't live a righteous life while living, surrendering his life to sin. In verse 20, he says, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And so Romans 7 uses this concept of sin dwelling in us. It's personifying sin. But within the same context, Paul writes in chapter 6, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In verse 17, that you are slaves of unrighteousness or sin. In Romans 6, verse 20, he again says you are slaves of sin. In Romans 7, 14, he says you are sold under sin. And so in Romans 6 through 7, they have a theme of sin's control over the unregenerated human being's life. So before we're baptized. And before we're baptized, he says that we are living as one who has sin dwelling in us. What does that mean? We are living as one who is controlled by the sinful desires of the flesh. So then he gets into Romans chapter 8. And with God... And Jesus, they dwell in us through our obedience to the word of God. That's what he kind of notes in 1 John 1, 4 and John 14, 23. When we do their will, they make their home with us. In Luke 22, when Judas does the will of Satan, Satan enters into his life and dwells in him. When anger and wrath are what control us, the Bible says that anger and wrath dwell in us. And so the concept of dwelling is a concept that refers to control. And we'll talk about that in the light of the Holy Spirit in a moment. And so what separates the Christian who reads the Bible and has the Holy Spirit dwelling in them compared to an atheist is the atheist is not allowing their life to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that control begins and ultimately is seen through baptism in Romans chapter 6. And so there's your kind of difference. It's not just reading, it's reading and letting it control your life, which begins and ultimately is kind of brought to fulfillment in our baptism. And so Romans chapter eight comes along and begins to introduce the individual, the Christian to the mindset that the spirit dwells in us. In fact, he uses that terminology. Now, Romans chapter eight, is a continuation of Romans chapter 6 and 7. He's continuing some thoughts that have been brought on. In Romans chapter 6 and 7, we're free from sin and death. We're free from uh, those things which separate us from a perfect relationship with God. And so Romans 8 begins, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Romans 8 is themed after its first verse and that is there is no condemnation to those who walk according to who uh, excuse me who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit how does the spirit work romans chapter 8 verse 2 for the law of the spirit of life in christ jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death and so immediately he recognizes that the spirit which we agree on works through his law and he's setting us free from sin and death by the new testament and by what is being written, recorded, and what is controlling our lives, and we surrender to it. And then he goes on in verse 3 through 4, kind of 3 through 5, to give an outline of the gospel story about how what the law could not do because it was weak, Christ did. He came to the cross. He condemned flesh in the flesh. 
and he said it uh, to be no more. And then he goes on in verse six, four. So this is a continuation of what's happening that we are no longer to be condemned for past sins because we've been forgiven. It says in verse five, for those who live according to their flesh, set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, six through, let's say 12 is a continuation and a further explanation of what that means. Four, because to be carnally minded is death. And that's explained in verse seven through eight. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Going back to verse six, he says, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And that's explained in verse nine through 11. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. And the person who is spiritually minded is the person, he says there, who in chapter, in verse 9, 10, and 11, is the one who has the Holy Spirit dwelling within them. And he wants us to understand that there is this great uh, movement. There is this great uh, joy that comes from having the Holy Spirit dwell within us. But what is we? what does that mean for us? Well, in the context of Romans chapter six through seven, to dwell meant to control. And that same definition is within, it's really the same pin stroke being used in chapter eight, verse nine through 11. And that is that God or the Holy Spirit will say was controlling or is controlling through his word, verse two, the life of the person who is not living according to their flesh. And so he says, we can know that we have no condemnation that can be levied against us if what? If the Holy Spirit is controlling us. And he furthers that point in the next text. He says in verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And so within the same breath and within the same context, he's talking about the one who uh, is led by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has the Holy Spirit within them. Now, there's great blessings within Romans chapter 8. The one who has the Spirit of God, verse 9, dwelling in them. The one who has the Spirit of Christ, verse 9, dwelling in them. And the one who has, again, the Spirit of God in them, verse 11, all have great blessings. Verse 9 says that they are no longer in the flesh. It means in verse 9 that we belong to God. And it means in verse 11 that we have spiritual life. And so whatever the Holy Spirit means when it dwells in us, it offers us these three great blessings that we're no longer in the flesh. We have a relationship with God and we have spiritual life as a part of God's family. And so when we think then about how the Holy Spirit works, how the Bible defines what it means to dwell, we have to conclude, I think, uh, that the context of Romans 8 teaches us that the spirit dwelling in us refers to our lives. It says there are spirit being controlled by the Holy Spirit through his word. And so Romans 8 verse 9 teaches that the Christian can know that he's not living according to the flesh or according to his carnal nature if he lives according to the direction of his own human spirit as it's educated and controlled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not living according to the flesh if the Holy Spirit dwells in him. So if the Holy Spirit controls me through his word, I can know for certain that I'm not living a fleshly life. And we have to understand that there's this great hope and great blessing given to us that as Christians we have 
because the Holy Spirit through his word can control us or does control us. Now, I'm not saying it takes away our free will, but we surrender to his control. And when that happens, we can know and have confidence that God's word is proving and testifying that we are not living a life that is carnal and therefore no condemnation can be levied against us. And so to answer that question you originally gave, and that's a quick synopsis of Romans 8, 1 through 12. Uh, that's, it's, a, it's a ridiculous chapter. Um, and so maybe we can talk more about that in a moment if you want to. But what he's talking about there, as we said, in the same breath as he's talking about control in chapter 6 and 7 being dwelling, He's talking about control in verse or chapter eight as being dwelling as well. And so when the Holy Spirit through his word controls our lives, when we surrender to it and our lives conform to the image that is presented within scripture, we are said to have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So it's not just reading. It's not just having the word of God be memorized or written on our hearts. It is the word of God controlling our actions and our lives and dictating how we choose to live our day to day life. That makes sense. Yeah, uh, it, it brings up one question. Okay. Um, so we're talking about dwelling in terms of control. Uh, th- that which dwells in you controls you. Is that correct? Yeah. Am I am I phrasing that right? Okay. Uh, so how can we tell the difference as a reader or maybe someone uh, here listening? Between when it's talking about dwell in the sense of control and when it's talking about dwell in the sense of God dwelling in us, obviously you don't think literally, but uh, let's say through a medium, uh, I think is the terminology you use. Uh, mm-hmm. So in the past, God dwelled with his people through a medium, and now we're introducing a, a new type of dwell, dwelling through a uh, uh, through control, mm-hmm. um, the thing that's controlling your life. How do we tell the difference between the two uses of that word dwell, whether it be through a medium, literally, or uh, through control? Okay. So I would say that they're not very far off. And what I mean by that is, in the Old Testament, again, when we talk about through a medium, God's medium dwelt with the people when it controlled their lives when it dictated what they did. And so in the Old Testament, God was present with his people in a visible, literal form, whatever we want to talk about. His presence, what he walked amongst his people when, when they were faithful to him. And so that is when they were controlled by his law and his statutes. When they lived in sin, he would retreat and separate himself. Uh, And then when they repented, he would come back. And so in the New Testament, we have a very similar tight knit between both concepts. When the word of God controls our life, it is said to dwell within us. When it is a part of our life, when it dictates what we do, and when we give conscious effort to do what the word of God says, it's, it's living in us and dwelling in us. And so really they're terms that are tied together. The word of God is not dwelling in us. God is not dwelling in us unless he is controlling us. And so we need both of them in harmony in order for this concept to work together. God is not dwelling in the person. The Holy Spirit or Jesus are not dwelling in the person 
who is living a life that is controlled by Satan and by sin. And so in order for, you know, we look at these two terms, we think about them in separate forms. They're really this very, they're as closely tied together as any terms can be. Maybe we'll say they're the same thing almost. Uh, and that is in order for one to happen, the other has to happen. For God to dwell in me, for Jesus to dwell in me, for the Holy Spirit to dwell in me, I have to be somebody who is controlled by the word of God. And so that's kind of my answer to that question is they're very, they're, they're as similar as they can be. Yeah, very good. Um, uh, kind of along those lines, since things from the Old Testament are oftentimes types and shadows to things that occur in the New Testament. Yeah. In the Old Testament, they had the word of God. They mm-hmm. had their, their Torah, their law. Mm-hmm. But they also had God dwelling with them, whether mm-hmm. through a medium or literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something separate from the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- th- those were two different things. And even whenever they were consuming the word, you still had the literal or medium presence of God mm-hmm. separate from that as well. Uh, how do we harmonize that with the, with the view in the, that you're taking in the New Testament where you're saying there's no longer this medium, it's just the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the, there's the word and the word is also the medium, I guess you, you would say. Okay. Uh, yeah. it, it's, it's taking both places. Uh, how do we harmonize that? Did, did we lose the medium and just retain the word? Is that how that worked? Well, again, there's still that medium, which is the word. And I would say the way we harmonize that is by recognizing that that's what the new testament teaches he would work through um that is in hebrews 8 he says it's going to be his word which dwells in our heart in romans chapter 8 he says that he works through his word in verse 2 and so that's kind of god can use a, a separate medium apart from whatever or he can use he can use whatever he wants to use And the New Testament teaches that the medium he wants to use is his word. And so we have the word, the literal word in front of us. We have that. But we also have the control and its existence spiritually inside of us when we surrender to it. And so we have both the literal word, which we can hold in front of us, and we have its spiritual sense inside of us as we uh, submit to it. And so the re- the way, like I said, we can harmonize that. In the Old Testament, he does. He, uh, We could say he has the law, the Torah. Uh, they've got the Tanakh. They've got the whole thing. Um, and then we have his Shekinah glory, all of that. And the New Testament, your point is that we just have the law. We just have the word. Yeah, it seems well, like we've, we've, we've lost something mm-hmm. uh, that we've actually taken. You know, we've become more primitive almost. Uh, at least on the surface, that's the way it seems, because they had yeah. not only God's presence, uh, but they also had the word. And now yeah. we just have the word and we've lost uh, that that holy yeah. presence, whatever, whatever it is, through a medium or through like, – we don't have smoke. We don't have fire. Right. We don't have, you know uh, – light or lightning. I guess we do have lightning, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, w- w- we don't personally have those things. Um, and so it, it seems like we, 
we've we've lost something i guess on the surface that's the way it seems is that we've just kind of we've lost that aspect the one thing that we have that they don't have is we have the completed word of god and so what we have in the completed word of god is greater than anything they ever had now they had what they needed and they had it was awesome it was powerful and we're not gonna limit the power of the word in the old testament but hebrews 11 says that what we have in the fulfillment of the promises is better and so we haven't gone primitive because we just have the word of god hebrews 4 says that the word of god is alive it is not just words written on a page and i think that is the fear of some i'm not saying it's your fear and i'm not calling somebody out but i'm saying i think when it comes to the literal uh, position, it is a position that is held at times because the word of God isn't enough. And I'm not saying that for you or anybody else, but I'm saying yeah. I get that perception at times. Yeah. But the, the the power of Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, those are all qualifications in Hebrews 4.12 that are given to the Holy Spirit as well in other texts. And so the, the word is attributing, is a, what is attributed to the word of God is life and power that God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, the Son, all have. And so have we gone primitive? No, because this word is something that is greater than has ever existed on this earth. It is greater than any form of light or uh, it is greater than any smoke cloud or fire that falls from the sky. It's this completed testimony is what the prophets of the Old Testament searched daily for, wanting to know when the fulfillment of the things that they had written would come to pass. And so we haven't gone primitive with just the word of God. We've been given the greatest thing and the greatest revelation of God's existence and that's the power of the word of God. And that's why you mentioned before when I talk about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, I talk a lot like a literal guy mm-hmm. because there's not a lot of difference. There's not a big difference between my position and your position. My position is a hope-filled position because the word of God is this amazing revelation of God. It is greater in God's eyes than a pillar of fire because he recognizes that it's the word of God is what we, this, our Bible is what we need in order to recognize his presence is with us. And that is the power of the new Testament and the completed work of God, that it's not this revert, uh, reversion back to a, an old way, a caveman way of living. It mm-hmm. is a hope-filled way of living within this grand, glorious scheme of God who is revealing himself through his word to us. And he has decided that with the completed picture, we don't need anything else. You don't need a pillar of fire. You, all you need is what's written within the text of the Bible because it's enough. And I think that is the powerful point of what's being written at the end of John, John 20. It says, for truly Jesus did many other signs and wonders in the presence of his disciples, which were not written in this book, but these are written that you may have life and have it abundantly. What is given to us is that which is needed and necessary in order to 
recognize the presence of God and to see the presence of God. Peter even says in Second Peter 1 verse 4, he says, by which we have been given exceedingly great and precious promises. That's through his word. That through these, through his word, we may be partakers of the divine nature of God. And so the, the way that God wants to share his nature, the way that God wants to share his presence and who he is in Second Peter 1 is through his precious promises and through his word. And that is a powerful message that needs to be understood, whether it's literal or, or word only. We can't diminish, and again, I don't think you do, we can't diminish the power of the word of God and what it does for us. Because I think even I, word only people and myself as a human being, there's times where I'm reading my scripture and I put it down and I go do other stuff. And I don't even give thought to the fact that I, I've just read this divine book, a book that is alive, that is cutting me to my soul, cutting the division between soul and spirit. And so God isn't giving us a, a primitive thing. He's giving us his fulfilled revelation within his word. And he's deemed or seen fit that that's enough for us. And so I think that's maybe how I would answer that question. Yeah. It, and all I meant by, by primitive is, is just that. Yeah. I use that it, term a lot. Yeah. It, it, it seems like we've, we've lost something that not that the word of God is primitive, but yeah, uh, no, I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. 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 So, so whenever I look at the old Testament and you know, the types and shadows, I, I see everything getting better. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I see, you know, the old priesthood and I see the new priesthood. I see Jesus serving as I, our high priest and, you know, uh, things are actually getting better mm -hmm. and, you know, the word of God has gotten better because we can mm -hmm. see the fulfillment. We are, we're able to know the mystery of God's plan and things like this. It's gotten better. And so whenever I see the way that God dwells with his people, I see it as something that has gotten better. Uh, mm -hmm. be before he, he dwelt in, in the, in the temple or, uh, in the tabernacle or in the Garden of Eden. Uh, now he dwells in each and every one of us mm -hmm. as individuals. Uh, we get that personal touch that we are now the temple of God and we are, we are special to God in that way. And we're all marked by God. Which leads me to my next question. Mm -hmm. Ephesians chapter one. Beautiful. Uh, the, the, <laughs> good transition, huh? Uh, Beautiful transition. So the, the seal of the spirit. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm going to let you kind of run away with this, uh, with the seal of the spirit. I feel like I just flex. I went like that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm stretching, not flexing. Got to get that uh, on camera. Yeah. Uh, anyways, Ephesians chapter one. It says we're yeah. sealed with the spirit. I'll let you give your view on the seal of the spirit. And then I just want you to kind of move in from there and kind of close us out with some final thoughts or touches or anything else that you want to bring in for, for time's sake. Yeah. I'm just going to sit back and keep my mouth shut. All right. <laughs> uh, I enjoy you talking because then I can't get myself in trouble. So oh, there you go. I appreciate it. So Ephesians is a beautiful book of Paul. It's one of his, as we kind of give a synopsis of Ephesians, it's one of his only books where he doesn't really rebuke his audience. He's not writing to condemn. 
He's not really writing to correct any issues that are going on within the church in, in Ephesus. In fact, church in Ephesus is a pretty great church. Uh, Paul spends a lot of time, at least three years in Ephesus, uh, maybe more. Um, and he's done a lot to help this congregation grow and develop spiritually. Uh, in the book of Revelation, they've left their first love and they need to come back. But other than that, he's got some, John has some pretty good accommodations for them. And so it's a great letter. And if your audience wants to read Ephesians, read it with Colossians because they're companion letters. And so he's constantly explaining something in Ephesians and using different terminology to explain the same thing in Colossians. So if you don't understand it in Ephesians, you can understand it in Colossians. Or the same with Colossians to Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is setting up the work of God. Ephesians is an easy book on my mind to split. Uh, there's six chapters. The first three, and really it is the gospel story we can talk about. Uh, the first three chapters are God's work and the the Godhead's work within the gospel story. The last three chapters are our response to the gospel story, walking and living faithful and holy lives. And so he begins in chapter one by giving a great synopsis of the work and the planning of God, the triune nature of God. And chapter one includes all three members of the Godhead. And what it does in verse four through six is it demonstrates that God made a plan. He chose and he predestined a family. He planned how and what would go into the salvation of humankind. That's God the Father. In verse 7 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 1, God the Son, Jesus, enacts the plan. He offers salvation. He gives wisdom through the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he gives us purpose by helping us live faithful lives. And then the Holy Spirit comes in in verse 13 through 14. And Paul uses this terminology of the Holy Spirit sealing us. And really, we need to understand that terminology as, so what does that mean? What does it say? It says that he sealed us. What does it mean? Really, it means that he's confirming the plan. And so there, uh, I'm going to start in verse 11. It says, in him also we have obtained the inheritance, so he's speaking of Christ, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works in all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. And so the Holy Spirit is the guarantee. He is the confirmation that God made a plan. Jesus enacted the plan. How can they, how do we know that that's real? Because the Holy Spirit has come and confirmed that to us. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, we need to understand what he means by we and you. And when Paul writes in we, or when the Bible writes in we and you terms, you have to understand who he's talking about and what's being talked about. And so that we, verse 12, who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. There's a couple of views on this. And the view that I believe is, say, the most in line with what Paul is writing about is that the we who first trusted are the Jews. And so he's writing here that, God has worked, Jesus enacted a plan, and the Jews were the ones who were first entrusted with it. We see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. 
Jesus sent out his apostles first to the Jewish nations and to his disciples to the Jewish nations. They were the first who were delivered the good news. They were the first who were preached the kingdom message through John the Immerser and others. And they were the first ones who we might imagine were entrusted with and baptized and were added to the family of God. Now, it doesn't mean at a later time God added the Gentiles, but the Jews were the first ones who heard the message in Acts 2.38. And so we have the we in verse 12. And the we is in opposition, or we might say in juxtaposition, to the you. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And the you there, if the first we is Gentiles, the you there, or if the first we is Jews, excuse me, the in him you is the Gentiles. And he says, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so the you were sealed is not the us. It is not the we of verse 12. And so the seal of the Holy Spirit is something that happened to the Gentiles. Now, it also happened to the Jews, but it happened on Acts chapter 2 with the apostles. The seal of the Holy Spirit was, I believe, we can say in general general terms, miraculous gifts. But I believe that the seal that he's referring to is Acts chapter 10 and the household of Cornelius. Now, what that seal did was it confirmed to Peter and to the rest of the Jews that the Gentiles were a part of God's plan for salvation. Now, I specify to Peter and the rest of the Jews is, in Acts chapter 2, God included the Gentiles in salvation's plan. But Peter and the Jews had a hard time accepting that, and that's weird to think that Peter preached the sermon of Acts 2 and yet didn't understand that the scope was the entire world. And so God gives him this vision, which is a prophecy from Hosea, and he shows him these animals, the sheep coming down with uh, all types of animals, creeping and four-footed animals and birds of the air coming down from the heavens. And God is telling him what I've made uh, clean, don't call unclean. And then he goes to Cornelius' house and says, oh, this is what God's talking about. And so the seal of Ephesians 1 refers back to that confirmation that God gave to the Gentiles that you are a part of my family or you are part of my plan to save humankind. And so in Ephesians 1 verse 12, we trusted in Christ and they had their seal. They had their confirmation. Acts chapter 2, the Jews, the apostles specifically, uh, received uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. They received the ability to speak in tongues. We'll say Uh, They received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that was uh, this great confirmation that God was beginning this new motion into his new kingdom. In Acts chapter 10, the house of Cornelius received the same thing. And in verse 46 through 48, the Bible recognized that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, as we had in the very beginning. And it was confirmation to Peter and to the Jews and even to the Gentiles that they were being added to the body and family of Christ. Now, there's another thought that this seal is this idea that we are kept for salvation as if uh, you unscrew the top of your milk jug and there's a seal that keeps it fresh. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the type of seal that is being spoken about here. The seal here is a signet seal. It is a visible outward seal. And that's why that is important in understanding what's being talked about. Whatever it is, whether it's 
household of Cornelius or miraculous gifts in general, he is talking about something that is visible and that is something that can be seen by other people. And that visible mark lets you know and let them know that you are a part of God's family. What was that visible mark that allowed the Gentiles to know that they were a part of God's family? In Acts 10, it's miraculous gifts. And so Paul here is saying that we should be faithful to the covenant, to the family, and to the work of God because he has confirmed to us that we are a part of his family. Now, the response that some people says, well, that means we're not sealed. We don't have this hope. What, what does this mean to me? Well, what it means to me is that Gentiles are a part of the family of God. And I'm a Gentile and I'm a part of the family of God. And while I may not have received miraculous gifts to confirm that to me, the Gentiles did receive miraculous gifts, confirming that God had included them in his plan for salvation. And so while I do not have the literal seal in me or upon me, that is miraculous gifts, I have what that seal confirmed, and that is the hope of salvation. And so that's how this applies to me today, even though I don't receive miraculous gifts. And that's this great message of Ephesians that God has worked, Jesus has worked, and the Holy Spirit has confirmed through miraculous gifts the plan and the working of God. And we have to understand what's going on in Ephesians 1 to see that. And he's drawing our attention to the fact that you and I can have confidence in our salvation because the Holy Spirit has confirmed to us through miraculous gifts that God is including both Jew and Gentile in his plan to be saved. And so that is the seal in Ephesians 1, and I believe it's Ephesians 3 or 4 that he's talking about, that there is a transition of our life. And why should we be faithful? Because the Holy Spirit has confirmed that you're a part of the plan. And that is an amazing gift that we have. And again, it's not something inwardly. It's something that is external in Ephesians 1 that is seen and visible by all humankind. Does that make sense? Yep. Makes right. sense to me. Uh, so, so what are some other things I'm a, I'm going to give you the floor to kind of, if you want to touch on anything else that you think is relevant to your viewpoint, um, and then also just some closing remarks to put a, a nice yeah. bow on everything. You're good. Um, you know, there's some questions that you've brought up that I think are important to answer. And maybe I didn't do the best of jobs and, um, I'm still learning and growing. In fact, I called you at one point through this and said, maybe I'm going to study myself out of the word only position. Um, and I haven't yet, but there are some difficult questions to, to, to struggle with at times. Some of them, I think we've talked about, like I said, Romans eight was a quick breeze through because we're getting through, uh, for some time's sake. And so if we have more questions about that, people can contact me, but again, there's, there's better people who can talk about this, um, and we shouldn't be afraid, ultimately, one of the reasons we're doing this, to have this conversation. Because if people could listen to Stewart's and mine's phone calls, they're an hour and a half, two hours long, and we disagree the whole time, and that's totally okay. It's okay to disagree on something like this um, and to be able to have a conversation. And so it's healthy to have these conversations and to know that we can talk about this kind of stuff in a safe environment and in a way that promotes growth. And so, like I said, there's some questions that we have to struggle with, but one that has to always be put back on the literal individual is this idea that if he does literally indwell in me, 
what does that mean? What does that do for you? And maybe that seems harsh, but it's a, it's a legitimate question because the Bible teaches that God does not work in vain. He does not work worthlessly or without purpose. And so we can agree that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, but what does that mean? We, you know, discuss this word only position, uh, but the Holy Spirit always works through his word. In Romans ten seventeen, faith is developed through the word. And so it's not through him dwelling in us. Uh, our new nature as spiritual beings comes through obedience to the word, not the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. We are made literally, I'll say literally dwelling in us. We are made spiritually alive through the word, John six sixty three. Uh, we're directed by the word, Psalms 119. We are made wise by the word, 2 Timothy 3. We are converted through the word of God and its application in our lives. We're sanctified by the word. We are purified by the word. We are built up and strengthened by the word. In fact, for the Holy Spirit to do anything apart from his word makes the word a liar because the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, that the Bible, his word is sufficient for all things. And so the question becomes, what does the Holy Spirit do for us if he literally dwells in us? And if the answer is nothing outside of the word, what's his purpose then? We can't feel him. You don't know he's living in you except for the fact that the word of God is controlling your life. You don't know that he's speaking to you except in apart from the fact that the word of God is speaking to you through his word. And so we have to wrestle with that thought as well. If God doesn't do anything worthlessly and there's no feeling, no consciousness of the spirit in us except through his word, we have to understand what that, how do we, wrestle with that idea. And I know Caleb will, and he's going to give a fantastic answer to that question. Um, but that is something that the other side has to ponder and think about for themselves. And as God's people, we ultimately come to the conclusion either way that he works through his word and he draws uh, us together and he creates unity through the word of God. And when we come to that conclusion, really I'll say this, the way I was raised, the, that my father, the way my dad taught me to think about this was if we can agree on the fact that the Holy Spirit only speaks to us and talks to us through his word, I really don't, and I know it's not everyone's going to agree with this, but I really don't care how you think uh, he dwells in you. If it's more comforting to think that he literally dwells in you, that's okay. It is really comforting to think that the word of God is how he dwells in me for me. If we can agree that he doesn't work separate and apart from his word, because that is what the Bible teaches, everything else is just what makes you more comfortable. Now, we get scared about that because the secular religious world believes he literally indwells in us, but he also, they extend that out and they say, well, he also speaks to me and uh, moves me and motivates me. And we have to be careful about that. And we can't go that, we can't go there. Stuart's not there. Caleb's not there. Um, but we are comforted by his word. And sometimes if I'm going to say this, like I said, if that comfort comes from the fact that you just think that he's dwelling in you literally, that's great. And I want you to have that comfort. Um, but our, our ultimate work flows down to the fact that he only works through his word. And so no matter what position we take, that is our foundational principle that we can all have harmony and unity in. And if I want to, close on anything is just, just to remember that 
throughout all of this, the word of God is meant to be, as you talked about with Hebrews, it is better. It is better than anything that they had in the Old Testament. And as he says in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. When it dwells in you, when it controls you, and when it is that which represents the presence of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit in your life and in your existence, it is doing something to you, and it is offering you a gift that nothing else in this world could ever offer you. And that is a close, personal relationship with God. And again, we sometimes are afraid to say we have a personal relationship with God. But we can scripturally say things like that and know and have confidence in them because of his word and what it teaches us. And so it's a great conversation to have, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's one that we should be encouraged by because ultimately, whatever position we take, we have courage that through faithfulness and obedience to the word of God, we have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in a way that is special and unique and that no one else ever is going to get to have except for those who submit to God and his will. And so it's a fantastic topic because sometimes we need encouragement and we need to be reminded that God wants to have a relationship with us and God wants to be a part of our lives in a literal sense. And that happens through his word. And that happens when his word is a part of our active life. And so when you read and study your Bibles, recognize that you're doing something that is drawing upon the presence of God and putting it into your life. And so it's not just a before bedtime, read your Bible, get a couple of verses in and you're great. This is something that you are living on and your relationship to God is dependent on. And so do it mindfully and do it in a way, in a manner that is purposeful. And that's what I'll kind of close with is just be purposeful with your reading of scripture because it's meant to help you develop your relationship with God. Thanks again for taking time out of your day to listen to the Real Biblical Application Podcast. If you have any questions about the discussion that was had today, please email me at realbiblicalapplication at gmail.com. And remember, keep on learning and finding ways to apply the Word of God to your life.